AI is gonna help the great get even greater and it's gonna help the average get eliminated. Obviously being a creative person, AI is to some people the death of innovation, creativity, and for others it's a tool to really enable businesses and individuals to grow and expand their reach. When we're working with businesses, where do you feel the markets at? Do you think people now in the industry are more fearful of AI or are people reaching out to you trying to figure out, hey, how can I use this to better my business? Where do you think the public sentiment is currently with that? Yeah, if you don't think the entire world and everyone's jobs are going to be completely displaced and shifted because of AI, then you just don't know AI enough. Um, I think at this point, you either use AI or you're going to get leveled, right? So what I always say to people is like level up or get leveled. At the end of the day, like someone's not coming for your job, but someone using AI is coming for your job. And in a world of infinite supply, the only way that you can do that is make sure that you're in more demand. And I think that AI is just another toolkit. It's another tool in the tool belt. And, you know, Batman never leaves uh, his Batcave without the tool belt. So make sure that AI is in your toolkit. And there's a million different ways to do that. Um, but I think it ain't slowing down and it's, going to be much bigger than the internet. It's going to be much bigger than the industrial revolution when we think about what's going to happen in the next you know, five to 50 years with this stuff. That's one of the things you just touched on. The pace is what is unmatched. The ability to grow and the ability for AI to do a lot of the tasks, which I say are time consuming, but typically maybe not creative, but just a lot of, comp a lot of compilations. That's where I've seen a lot of the even benefits today when AI is in its infancy extreme benefits. And like you touched, you need a human typically to run. And I think that's always the case, but one person may be able to do 10 jobs instead of 10 robots doing one person job in a weird type of way. Um, yeah. And also the longer you wait to get on board, the harder it's going to be to make the shift, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're playing with this stuff right now, and I'll just be really specific, right? If you're playing mm -hmm. with mid journey or chat GPT or some, you know, some of the really basic use cases of AI today, you know, whether it be text to image or text to text or whatever it is, right? The common ones that are out there, there's a million of them, right? Um, I have a whole directory that we built out just because yeah. people are always asking me like, what tool should I use, Pete? But in all seriousness, like if you think about what's possible today and you start understanding like what is a prompt, like what is an LLM, like these mm -hmm. kinds of things, it's a whole lot easier a, a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now when the big shift happens versus I have some creatives that, you know, work at, you know, big brands or big agencies or whatever it is. And they're sort of like kind of poo-pooing on AI. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it's it's like, it's not nearly as good as me and da da da, da whatever. And then what's going to end up happening, right, is like then when they eventually have to make the shift and have to make the change, it's going to be like the whole sort of okay boomer meme where it's like, yeah. okay boomer, you know, and I think that's the problem that people need to wake up to because everything is going to change as a result of how we interact with each other how we build companies and services and just how we do work. And, and dare I even go a little bit more provocative and say like, what is work, mm -hmm. right? And, and how is that going to change over the next, you know, three to five years with all these things kind of rapidly coming into our foreground? Mm -hmm. It's funny when you touch on how, how we are, how do we work now? What does the meaning of work? Because I remember listening to, a, I don't know if it was a podcast or a speech and someone saying, you know, back before computers, people work nine to five. Now there's computers, people are still working nine to five, but computers are more efficient. What are people actually doing with all their time? And obviously roles have expanded, but it's the same idea of work adapts and work changes, but also figuring out how you can bring value now that maybe a lot of those tasks of data entry or data synthesis can be taken over more effectively with AI or at least other tools allowing people to yeah. spend time doing what brings businesses or individuals value. 
products change, technology changes, but I think inherently people don't change. And what's interesting is like one of the, the mental models I think a lot about is this idea called Parkinson's law, which mm -hmm. essentially says that like, if you give somebody eight hours to finish something, they're going to take seven hours and 57 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. If you give someone 80 hours or 80 days to finish something, they're going to take, you know, that, that amount of time. In most cases, we fill our time, we fill our space, we fill our minds with things. So I think if you go back to like the origins of work, right? People used to work like sunrise to sunset in a lot of ways, right? And then there was th this idea of nine to five that really was created by a lot of these, you know, industrious business people, right? Mm -hmm. Like we didn't have this idea of a Monday through Friday. There was no such thing as a weekend until Henry Ford created the weekend, right? In a lot of ways with, with the, the motor car and the production and that sort of thing. So I think what's interesting is like these systems were created by you know, really old or dead white men. Um, and I think what's interesting now is that we're seeing that there's a different way to achieve success. There's a different way to work. And I think that how people work, you know, the reason they work, their purpose, their why, I think, you know, lots of things have changed it, not just AI or technology. I mean, obviously COVID made a big impact there, the internet. So, you know, I can get, go down like a hundred rabbit holes with this one, but I think what's super interesting for me about all this advancement of AI technology is that it allows great thinking to be even greater at a more rapid pace, right? So I think what's going to happen is if you see like the pyramid, right, of like crappy stuff fills the bottom and the top of the pyramid is really, really small and tiny, what's going to happen is the top of the pyramid is still going to be the top of the pyramid. It's going to be people using these tools really intelligently, you know, building on top of it, fine-tuning models, building their own custom-based models, whatever, and then just really scaling and and increasing their ability to create value for their end customers, right? Or value for themselves, whatever it is. But I think that there's going to be this like increase of crap that we see on the internet. And like anything, I'm big into brands, like brands is what I do. So like as a marketer and a person who builds brands for a living, I'm always helping people identify like what is differentiation. And I think the devil's in the differentiation, the devil's in the defaults. And like the choices you make as a practitioner today, I think the impact of those choices is going to be felt a lot faster. The hype cycle is going to move a whole lot faster. So I don't know. I can, I can go off on a tangent, Brandon, but I hope that's helpful for you in the audience. Maybe this is an interesting topic to discuss, though, and that you just sparked my idea was, obviously, now that the hype cycle, the speed of innovation is increasing with AI, with work from home, and more, an individual could technically now generate more value. Do you think with the increase of AI that the great get greater and then the average become worse? Do you think there'd be a more now differentiation in the workforce between the super effective, highly effective people, and maybe more of the, uh, depending on what four by four or two by two you're looking at, the average individual who may no one works a typical nine to five, do you think it's going to create a greater separation or divide within the global workforce? Because the idea was the internet made everyone equal playing ground. Is AI now and maybe this is a little bit of a leading question, but now is AI going to be the opposite and create more of a divide now? Or do you think it allows the average person to become more powerful? I love that question. So what I would say is AI is going to help the great get even greater, and it's going to help the average get eliminated. And the reality is if you dig into the results right now, the only jobs that are not being disrupted in some way, shape, or form, I didn't say eliminated, but the only jobs that are not being disrupted right now are plumbers, masons, and some of those trade workers that ultimately can't be replaced with machines just yet. But again, people also said that the factory worker would never be automated. And now we see 
you know, just these completely robots, cobots, industrial revolution, you know, sorry, 4.0, excuse me, industrial revolution 4.0 kind of changing these things in a big way. So I think what's interesting about all these things is they are a catalyst for change, but I also think what they're a catalyst for is rapidly speeding up society, right? So what's interesting is people talk a lot about Gen Z or Gen Alpha what they don't understand is the way that the brain is interpreting signals is so much different for someone that spends eight hours or 10 hours a day on their phone and has done it for 15 years versus someone that maybe spends less time on their phone, right? You know, there's a strong correlation between the amount of information that you are bombarded with, say on like a TikTok or that sort of thing, and how it directly affects receptors and chemical releases in your brain. And I think that we wonder why mental health is as fragmented as it is. Again, you're in Toronto, right? But mm -hmm. here in America, mental health is the is starting to finally become less of a faux pas. You know, the healthcare mm -hmm. system in America is completely fucking broken um, in a lot of ways. Um, and that's a whole separate conversation that, that I'm not here to talk about. But what I am here to talk about mm -hmm. is how do we look at these tools and not be scared by them, right? What I tell people is like, stop worrying about this thing taking your job. Start asking the question of, how can this make my job more rewarding? How can this make my job more, you know, more relaxing, more productive? You know, a good example is I have a, a colleague of mine and she is in the legal services and she's like, you know, I'm a paralegal. Like, am I going to even have a job in a couple months when my lawyer um, boss can just push a button and all the proofreading that I do and statute checking that I do can be done by a machine? And I said, well, let's pretend for a moment that you spent eight hours a day there. And let's pretend for a moment now that four hours of the day, you no longer have to be doing proofreading, which is prone to making mistakes, right? Which then ultimately blow back on you or your firm. What if those, what would you do with four extra hours a day? And she's like, well, I'd probably like start studying so that I could become an attorney and take the bar one day. And I was like, oh, so you want to be an attorney one day? And she's like, she's like, yeah, that'd be kind of a cool thing. And I'm like, awesome. How great would it be if you're a law firm and a young woman that's on your team that's a paralegal right now, and I know someone who's in this role, goes on to become an associate, goes on to become a partner in your law firm in the future. And because they've been through the culture of the organization, they add so much more value. That's the thing that these AI tools can help with because now instead of people doing proofreading and basic grammatical checking and those kinds of things, we have tools that can accelerate that, right? So I think it's less about replacing and more about catalyzing and streamlining how people spend their time and energy. People are people and there's always the consistency. Technology changes faster than humans do. Um, and it's always true. I think we always like to think, you know, we're different than our parents. I think differently. I'm so much more innovative. And then you have kids and then you're a grandparent one day and you're like, oh, I'm the old person now. So everyone ages and changes and humans are humans. But <laughs> Absolutely. kind of with both of us that we have books behind us. Now, this is maybe when I talk to, I guess, younger generations, there's always a pushback on why would I read a book? Everything I can learn on learn is online. It's quicker. Books take you know time to develop. Do you find this is more of a personal question? But do you find and I have my own opinions. Do you find reading effective for learning new things, or do you think that for learning about these topics, reading a book is challenging to stay on the cutting edge because there's always a delay between the knowledge transfer to paper and you getting the book? So, what are your view on books? I think that most binary things are bullshit. So I don't believe in a this or a that. I live my life in the, in the world of and. So what I would say is, if you notice the books that I have behind me right now, 20 or 30 years from now, those books are still going to be massively valuable and useful because they have evergreen knowledge that 
largely ladder back to human behavior, right? The book from Rick Rubin, laddering back to like just creativity, like the book from Brene Brown, laddering back to vulnerability and what it's like to lead with people. People don't change all that much. If you go back 40, 50, 100 years, in a lot of ways, you know, we're all driven by fear, greed, ego, all the different things that, that move the human experience. And I don't think that's going to change even when we start putting Elon Musk's Neuralinks inside of our heads and, you know, when we start walking around with, you know, cyborg versions of ourselves that are connected to the cloud, you know, 24-7, 365. On that note, I tend to make a choice. So I'm, I'm a very voracious reader. I'm constantly reading things. I will typically make a decision. Is this thing that I'm going to read or watch, is it going to be valuable for me in the next five days? next five years or next lifetime. And when I look at something, if I feel like it's going to have evergreen knowledge, I actually then prefer to purchase the physical title because then I can have a tactile feel of having that sort of feeling of the page and taking it with me. I also, I used to travel a lot more. So that's why I love my iPad because I can read things. But for most part, what I like to think about is if something is going to be irrelevant in the next 12 months, I won't buy a physical book. Um, one, because I don't want to you know, tax the environment any further with, with printing things or having physical goods. But there is something nice. It's a nice reminder when I walk by and I sit down every morning or I get up and go get my coffee and I come back, I see that book. It's almost like a totem that reminds me of something that matters to me. Like why I have Master Chief, which I see you have as well here in the background. One, my friend designed this uh, you know, memorabilia item for the Halo 3 video game. He's the creative director. But also what Master Chief stood for, you know, being a leader, being someone who wasn't afraid to go push on these different narratives, but also Master Chief had a Cortana, the AI, which, you know, Microsoft obviously did things with. But the point is these things that we put in our field of vision are things that help us remember things. So for me, that's why when I think about books, if a book will have evergreen knowledge that I can use five years from now, I'll many times go back and read a book. It's a fantastic thing. But to your end, if it's if it was a book about, you know, um, large language models, like I would not dare purchase that because by the time the book was printed, it was already extinct at the speed of adoption and these kinds of things. So I hope that answers the question. I don't believe in the binary. It's not this or that. It's much more about the end for me. I have actually a bunch of books right below me here that is not shown on camera, but very same thing. I, I read heavily on behavioral psychology. Oh, sick. Um, awesome. So a lot of Daniel Kahneman and same thing where it's, Thinking you know, fast and slow, one of the best Thinking fast there. and slow. The great part, of, well, the benefit, and I say weakness of the book, because I read that book. That was the first book I read, and how every other book refers to it. So even books now I've written last week are still referring to the same content. So obviously, like you're saying, on human behavior doesn't change that fast. And reading books about how humans, how to lead, typically, there's always some hot, like diets. There's always a hot new trend of the month or of the year. But typically, being nice helping people achieve their aspirational goals always tends to be good leadership uh, attributes as well. So yeah, your view on books is I, was trying, I, I always it. like to ask people because a lot of people like you said, are very binary, like, Oh, books are a waste of time. And then I find they say it earlier in their career. And then as they get later on, they similar to you, like you were saying, Oh, there are things that tend to stay consistent. Um, and funny enough for me, myself, I used to read on a Kindle, but I spend so much time in front of a screen. It's actually nice to, physically hold something, read a book and let the eyes rest a bit. I want to sort of like double back on something that you said there, which I think is interesting, which is this idea of what I would sort of say is like, fast calories versus good calories. 
<laughs> and, and what I mean by that specifically is when you think about thinking fast and slow as a book, it's a hard book, right? It takes a lot of energy to get through. Um, and when you really think about like that book and how much energy it takes to get through, it didn't do nearly as well as like the subtle art of how to not to give a fuck, right? With like its loud, flashy title and it's like trite kind of like junk food type of diet for information. What I think is interesting is you, you reference the fact that so many of these great books are referencing and standing on the knowledge of thinking fast and slow. For me, I think there's this idea of like ancient time release knowledge where people have put a lot of work in, a lot of research, a lot of rigor. And it's not just something that you could like, you know, eat a bag of Doritos on and move on, right? So that's where I think it's interesting because I think right now we're living in this sort of like hook retain reward cycle that happens on social media where it's like, if you don't hook you right in the audience, you're going to get skipped. But the problem I think with that is then even the really smart people who are trying to you know, build their business or build their brand or whatever it is, they have to cater to that lowest common denominator of who's going to get hooked into the hook cycle. So I think it's funny that you say that because I think what I love is going really deep, right? Some, pe some people like to read the headline. I like to read the fucking library because for me, like it's a level of depth that I'd rather have a hundred or a thousand true fans in my audience than a million Instagram followers who are following me because I'm saying some salacious shit to get people to have likes and comments. So maybe that'll be different for me when I have a million followers one day, but um, if I ever do, but I just think that's how I think about it right now is like, how do we go find that really good knowledge that's really true and tested? That's not going to just, you know, come by way of a fad diet or, you know, the next self-help book in the bookstore. That's where I get super jazzed up. Yeah, it, it's really asking the why, you know, especially in behavioral economics, we're figuring out what was the root cause of this? Why are certain behaviors occurring? And a lot of times the root cause is almost always similarly. Like for dieting, there's all these theories and stuff, but really, to, if you boil it down, just eat healthy and move. That yeah. is 98% of everything. And you can be very healthy doing that, but it, you're trying to optimize something that isn't most for most people useful to optimize. Totally. You... You also work with, obviously, within your the other jobs, working with brands and working with organizations, helping them scale and grow. A lot of times, startups or small businesses tend to be very, I don't say fad-based, but like spur of the moment. You saw crypto 2011, 20, you know, 2022, now it's AI. When working with these smaller businesses, how do you find or especially understand what's a, maybe not a fad, but what differentiates the organizations that are maybe more fad-focused? versus organizations that maybe have a more of a deeper meeting who maybe have that next layer of stuff. Cause obviously you want to jump on the AI train when AI is hot, but what differentiates a flash in a pan versus a real business or a real brand you're trying to develop? True value is vegetables and toppy trends is junk food or junk food. Um, how I would go deeper on that is what I would say is when a startup comes to me and my team, what we first do is we sit down with the CEO and the founder and we really get in their head to say like, why did you start this thing? Show me the world today and show me why the world needs another X and needs another Y. What's that transformation look like, right? Or that before, after bridge as some marketers call it, right? So for me, when, when they can sell me the shift of what that vision is and how if you take away the AI thing or the widget thing, it still adds some real value in someone's life. You know, people don't want to buy features and benefits. They want to buy better versions of themselves. So I think when you can sell 
painkillers, not vitamins, that's when at the end of the day, you have a startup that's going to go the distance. And I think what we do is, is a really important thing because when we're helping people tell their story, your story is your strategy and how you express it makes a huge difference, right? But at the end of the day, if we give you a great brand that is true to who you are, it might put you out of business faster if you don't have a strong enough business model that's going to withstand the test of time, right? I mean, there's the Spider-Man meme going around where everyone's pointing at things where it's like, you know, um, there's that meme that, that people are seeing a lot. And there's also the Scooby-Doo meme pulling the, the hat off where it's like all these AI businesses are just a fucking chat GPT API call. And at that point, there's nothing novel or interesting about it. It might be like a novel shift, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about some of these like AI note-taking software programs that I use right now. Well, this past week, Zoom rolled out AI companion for every one of their users, right? So if you're using the same LLMs and foundation models that Zoom is, well, Zoom's going to have a whole lot more competitive advantage because they have a, the lion's share of the market. So how do you do it different, right? You know, one of my favorite companies right now is a company called Linear. And I think Linear really focuses on craft. Linear, if you're not familiar with it, it's a product management software. Um, and what they really focus on is how do you make product and project management better, faster, and more enjoyable for teams? And it's an incredible tool. And they've defied so many of the laws of gravity that most startups have followed, right? For one, they don't have product managers the same way that companies have product managers, right? They've hired more engineers and designers, which some people love, right? It's completely changing the way it was. And I think what's interesting about that is they also focus heavily on craft. And this concept, what I'm like over the moon excited about, I think you're going to love it too, Brendan, is like this concept of making opinionated software. I think we need more opinionated software. We need more opinionated businesses because right now when we're all chasing the trend or the fad, we're not differentiated. And that's what brand does, right? Brand is ultimately like reputation building at scale. I would say brand is not, you know, your colors, your logo, your fonts. Brand is the space you occupy in the hearts, minds, and wallets of your customer. And it's what they say about when you're not in the room, right? And that's where like brand is such a powerful thing. When startups don't believe in brand or they come to us and they're like, want to grow, grow, grow and, and, and blow up super fast, I pause, I slow down, and I empathize with them. Because a lot of times they've, they've raised a little bit of capital. They're, they're probably over leveraged and undercapitalized. And they have to show immediate disproportionate returns to their investors very quickly or else their dream is going to turn into a nightmare. And I think what's super powerful about that is when you empathize with their speed, you can figure out really quickly, are they going to be a great client for you or not? And I think what I can figure out, and I actually have, right when I hang up with you today, I have um, what's called a story selling workshop, which is something that me and my team do here a lot. And I'm going to be meeting with a CEO of a really great business. They're doing like $20 million a year right now. They're a year old and they're on this big growth path, right? And I'm asking the questions of like, what's the world going to look like in three years? you know, forget about the revenue number, like how many people's lives have you changed with X or with Y or with Z? That's where I think the rubber really meets the road is figuring out like, what is the thing that makes you different and better? And I don't think it's going to be this large language model, or I don't think it's going to be this, you know, cool, shiny, you know, blockchain thing or whatever it is. I do think in the future, we're, we're going to move to a more trustless, decentralized world where truth matters a lot more and validation matters a lot more and 
removing monotony matters a bunch more. And when that world comes to life, yes, we will see principles of the composable web or web three and blockchain. Yes, we will see principles of AI. Yes, we will see principles of good design and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, the people who are just chasing the shiny thing on top, I believe that they're going to fail because they're they're not going to stick with it. And they're going to get what I like to call um, kind of rubberneck, rubbernecking of, of startup CEOs. If you look at Mark Zuckerberg today, who I think is one of the most prolific entrepreneurs that we've seen in our generation, whether you like him or not as a human, you cannot argue his level of success and brilliance, right? If you look at Mark 20 years ago and you look at Mark today, he's still doing the same thing. He's finding different ways to connect people. He's doing that through social applications and that sort of thing. So whether it's in the metaverse or all the AI open source innovation that they're doing right now, he's finding ways to better connect people at work, in life, and that sort of thing. So, and no, I'm not on Mark Zuckerberg's pay, payroll, right? But I, I just want to be clear about that because I think that I get pretty opinionated when it comes to these topics. And you know, kudos to the people at Linear who are opinionated with their vision. Kudos to the people at Meta who are opinionated with their vision. Because if you don't have a clear vision, then anybody can sway you. And that's where I think things get really interesting in the future. What you touched on is something I always run into. Um, I work closely with my mater as well, helping mentor startups. And one of the questions I always say or always comes up is every time someone opens their mouth and say, we're an AI business that does this, I tend to recall or cringe a little bit because typically how I've seen the better pitches is, you know, we're a business that does, we connect people and we happen to use AI to really optimize this one issue with it. But that's not our main focus. It's a tool we use to get to our goal. And that is the kind of conversations I've seen throughout time where success really comes from is what are you doing and what tools effectively allow you to get there faster or more effectively? And I think a lot of times, especially for the hot, you know, the flash in the pan is if you can take the same business and then say, you know, we're the same idea or we're using blockchain. Now we're using AI. You can see those businesses adapt because you're not really solving a real issue if the whole point of your business is just to be an AI company that does X because you think you can get funding easier. Um, cause I talked to a lot of VCs as well. And the one thing all VCs like is sales. If you can make money, that is probably the best thing you can do when trying to raise money. Um, which is a, n- a new idea, but I always, it's always funny joking around with people who are, who know, who raised a few years ago, $30 million pre-revenue. Yeah. And, and sure. that sounds great until you realize if you gave them 30 million, they're expecting at least $300 million back in a few years. So you better be or, growing very yeah. fast. Or they're investing because they think there's a small chance that you might win and that you, mm-hmm. and there's a bigger chance that you might not. But at the end of the day, um, no one wants to say that they missed Facebook or that they missed Snapchat mm-hmm. or whatever it is, right? Um, or Uber. Um, I, think, I do think what's interesting in, in what you just said there is whether you think about the old world of VC, which is just a couple of years ago, or what I believe will be the new world of VC, which we can talk about in, in just a few moments, is... I really feel strongly that when you look at revenue, retention, and enterprise value of an organization, when you look at like what is the true gross profit lifetime value, not just lifetime value, but what's the gross profit lifetime value of your audience, and how do you continue to make sure that over time you are designing and manufacturing that number in a way that it's going up and to the right, that's what I believe is going to be the future of healthy businesses. Because just look at the stats, Brendan, right? Like if you look at the companies that IPO'd in the past three years, look at the value of the company pre-IPO, post-IPO, and then after the sort of floor settled. 
right? Look at the, the, just the skeleton of the value that these companies have in a, in a post IPO uh, market. And I'm obviously referring to the American stock market here, just clear for, for the audiences listening from different parts of the world. But I think that that's where we have to really dig in a bit is that value is in the eye of the customer. And the more that you can understand that customer and deliver delight for that customer, the more that you're going to differentiate whether or not you put, you know, vanilla ice cream and large language models into your tool or not. I think it's going to come down to like, what value do you deliver? And my favorite thing that I think of, there's a, this came, the guy who started Superhuman, the email program, he's a very awesome startup founder. He's a great growth hacker. Um, I think his name is Raul, if, if my name, if my memory is suiting me, but he is a CEO and founder of Superhuman. And he has this test that he gives to people to find out how sticky the product is. And he basically asked the question, if we didn't exist tomorrow, I'm going to paraphrase. If we didn't exist tomorrow, how disappointed would you be if this product didn't exist tomorrow? And depending on how people answer that question, it's an immediate declaration of, do we have product market fit or not? Because I think the definition of product market fit, I've had 40 plus entrepreneurs on my show that have built billion dollar companies and exited and IPO'd and the whole thing. And what I learned from all of them is the same thing. Product market fit, the true definition of is, I'll know it when I see it. And there's no better way to know it when you see it than when you get a large amount of signal from your customer base saying that like, if this thing didn't exist tomorrow, I would be so damn unhappy. That's how you know that you've got product market fit. Whether you're a small dry cleaner on the corner down to the next, next to the bodega, or whether you're, you know, the next Sam Altman AI product that he's going to launch with OpenAI. Product market fit is the one of the most challenging things because everyone knows they need it, but how to know when you have it is always difficult. I know when speaking with a lot of young, younger founders or early founders, they say, you know, oh, this is such a great idea. It's benefiting everyone's life. But I always like use the example, if a microwave can cook your food two seconds quicker, does it really matter? Or if, you know, if Amazon instead of shipping it, you know, next day, it's only 23 hours does the marginal improvement make a difference in the customer's life? And like you're saying, if the customer said, oh, if you didn't exist, well, the alternatives aren't that bad. I mean, it's a little bit worse. Maybe I have to wait an extra few seconds or wait an extra few hours. But if that doesn't matter to your customer, then you're not really solving a real issue. You're just optimizing something that doesn't need to be optimized. Long. I think that's one of the challenges that really comes a lot with a lot of these. When speaking with a lot of founders or having great ideas is that a as Everyone says a problem to you is sometimes not a problem to your market. And I think that's what's always challenging, getting out of your own skin and looking, will someone actually pay for this idea? Or are they just saying, yeah, it's a good idea. I ain't going to pay for it. And that's not a business. That's an idea. If I told you the number of times that I got paid thousands of dollars an hour to just help somebody reframe a problem, I would almost be bragging. And I'm not going to do that on this podcast, right? But like, I'll give you a very specific example. People often look at the problem or solve the wrong problem or don't understand the problem at all. So I'll give you an example. Um, this is a real case study um, that I read about and studied about. So there's a building and the building has elevators. And I happen to work for an elevator company at one point, but this was a case study that I had nothing to do with. But this is a great story for you in the audience, right? So the building management was getting all these complaints from people saying the elevators took way too long to go. So they went out, they hired some very expensive, smart consultants, right? It was probably a McKinsey-like person that they hired. I don't know, right? Someone like that. And the, the consultants came in, they charged a bunch of money and they said, okay, we're going to optimize and streamline the elevator uh, speed. We're going to replace the elevators with this building company. We're going to put in this AI-powered elevator track so that when people are in this room, they know which elevator to go on and we'll separate them in different journeys, blah, blah, blah. 
the design thinker comes into the room and the design thinker says, these are really expensive ways to solve that problem. I don't actually think we have a speed problem in our elevators. I think we have an experience problem in our elevators. So what does the design thinker do? The design thinker goes and puts a mirror in the elevators, right? And people are so damn vain that now the number of complaints drops almost to zero because what happens in an elevator when you're staring at yourself in the mirror, you're like, oh man, my hair looks like this or my shirt. Oh, I spilled some coffee in my thing because all people care about it is what I call whiffy, right? What's in it for you or what's in it for me, right? So if that company went and spent a million dollars on redoing the elevators, right? That's a million dollars that they couldn't put back into getting to know their customers better, surprising, delighting the customers when they came into the hotel room or the business or whatever it is, or finding different ways to add value, making the building more efficient to say that we're more sustainable as a business and using less energy. Um, so I think people typically solve long-term problems with short-term bad decisions. And I think the way to do it is reframe the problem altogether. And that's just one of my favorite examples of how do you look at the problem that you have a little bit differently? Because when you look at the problem differently, new possibilities arise, right? So what I always say is like possibilities create better answers, better questions, unlock better outcomes. So the only way to do that is to shift the way that you think and stop going surface level, right? It's, it gets back to the idea of like, Privacy is vegetables, pleasure is junk food, right? It's like, think about the thing that matters most. People always look at the symptoms, not the root cause of the problem. And in Absolutely. your example, it's the symptoms are, we need a faster, it's like the Henry Ford thing. I want a yeah. faster horse, but it's the same thing. And my favorite example I use is the McDonald's. I think it's McDonald's milkshake thing where they want to get people to go McDonald's in the morning. So they were giving smoothies because people wanted healthier things. But they realized they used to wanted thicker milkshakes because what people wanted was something to sip on for their hour commute. So the way they were doing it was actually just make a thicker milkshake and it solved the problem. They didn't care about being healthy in the morning. It's the same idea that a lot of times the real problem, and I think this is where the great founders or the great organizations have, is they find a real problem they're solving and not really looking. Their problem first, solution second. Yeah. Because you can always pivot. You're typically pivoting your solution. Not If you're pivoting your problem, there's typically a red flag in your business. And that's what uh, I tend to see with a lot of these uh, early stage companies, especially working with founders, is the problem rarely changes. Maybe the solution does. And that's kind of how you know you're onto the real thing. Yeah. What I always like to say is like dig into the experience first before the product, right? As crazy and contrarian as that might sound. And someone might be like, well, you're just a branding marketing person. That's why. But like if you dig into the elevator example, the mental health example that you just mentioned, the Burger King, the fast food example, which is like where they went and launched the chicken figures with the, the the thing that kind of fit into the cup holder because they realized people were commuting into the stores or whatever. Like mm -hmm. there's so many different things. It's like, sometimes it's the modality. That's the problem. Sometimes it's the experience. That's the problem. And if you can shift that first, it's often a lot less expensive and it's a lot faster of a catalyzing impact, right? It's really difficult when you think about the product lifecycle, even in this world we live in today where we can code software with AI and click things and deploy things at the click of a button. But when you have to change a physical product in a physical warehouse and go through all the cycles of legal operations, supply chain, manifesting that into the world, there's a, a long lagging indicator of success there. So I think in some cases, what I like to think about is like, investigate the experience first, start through the eyes and the hearts of the customer, and then experiment and learn on that. And then use that to innovate incrementally to what becomes the disruptive innovation, right? Like everyone talks about the Netflixes of the world and all those things. But the reality is all Netflix did was shifted the experience, right? 
Instead of sending DVDs in the mail, they shifted to streaming when computers and internet technology was fast enough to do it. Did they really change their product that much? In the beginning, now, sure, now we've got Netflix's own uh, content series, the whole thing. But in the beginning, you know, right before House of Cards came out with, with their original IP property, it was all just licensing other people's content and finding a way to bundle and distribute it. So what I always say in some cases is shift your distribution model, shift your experience model, shift your business model, and then and only then go and make that giant investment in your product. So that's just one way that I think about it. Um, for a lot of my clients, you know, we practice a lot of like the, the lean startup or mm -hmm. design thinking kind of methodology. It sounds like you're in a very similar camp right now with the kind of work that you do with like five whys analysis and stuff before you kind of go and start making surface level changes. This is very interesting. Obviously, I've seen now it's, it's always the heat of the moment. I find when VC money's tighter, people always go back and I think it's better to being what problem are you actually solving because money's more expensive. You want to bet on more sure wins, um, especially as things grow. And it's always a, I always think, I think it's always good for every business founder to know what you're trying to solve and why you're trying to solve it. Uh, yeah. But it, it and it's is a hard. It's, it's a trite question too. Like, you know, I, I did this the other day with somebody where they were like, you know, if I hear about this five Y thing one more time, like it's such a, you know, bullshit answer, blah, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I basically was like, do you just not know how to do this? And I like, I, I wrote them a chat GPT prompt on like how to do root cause analysis. And now like he said to me, he's like, Every single day, the only thing that I, the first thing I do is I run this chat GPT prompt that you wrote for me. Um, and that made me happy because I'm like, all right, now I'm adding value to this person that was previously like, I don't want to do five whys. And really he didn't want to do it the same way that I don't want to go and run, you know, two miles a day to get in good shape, right? It's like, it's a lot of work to go through and keep going deeper and deeper and deeper to, to get to the bottom of that, you know, rabbit hole or journey to come up with something that's salient and, and usable. So that's where I think that these AI tools can be really powerful is like helping us get to better outcomes faster and getting closer to yes or closer to no with your customers, your investors, your teammates, and that sort of thing. And that's what I'm really thinking about a lot more in how I think about leverage and how I think about design in building businesses. Final question I always like to ask is you obviously run your own business. You work with a lot of people as a business scales, and this is always an interesting question and you know, You've probably seen this a few times as well. What do you think the biggest changes are in founders who maybe are, have an idea, go from the ideation to small founding team to maybe that 10, 100 employee level organization? What do you tend to see as the big changes required along the way? Because obviously during our conversation today, there's a lot of them around the idea how to form a business. But on the leadership side, there has to be some changes along the way. And do you think, what are some of the things businesses or founders tend to overlook, especially as their business scales? What got you here will not get you there. You know, famous way of thinking. There's been lots of books written about it that will be evergreen and, and in yeah. the bookcase. Um, I would say <coughs> you have to look at your people. You have to look at your product. You have to look at the surrounding factors that happen in the business. And understand that the economics and the people that got you from zero to 20 people or zero to 20 million probably aren't going to be the same people that are going to take you from, you know, 20 million to hundred million. And then, you know, who knows IPO or whatever after that. Um, I think there's a, there's a cult of startup thing that happens where the best builders like to build. And they're very good at a specific stage. 
Um, there's a great book uh, called Blitzscaling that talks a lot about just sort of the different stages in a, in a startup. I think it was Reed Hoffman that wrote it. Um, you have to fact check that on me, but um, don't ask ChatGPT, it lies. But, um, but jokes aside, I think what that book talks about is sort of building companies in stages. And I think for my, myself, you know, where I add a ton of value is in that, like the art of the start, as I like to call it. Um, and I work with Fortune 50 companies that um, are my clients but they are really bringing us in for that breakthrough creative innovation and that thinking. I have tremendous respect and appreciation for clients that are driving the business that's the modern day analogy of the Titanic or this, maybe not Titanic because that's got a sad ending, but like the big ocean liner, right? Yeah. The giant ocean liner that takes a day to make a turn. You know, it takes a long time. It's like puddles become ponds and ponds can become oceans very quickly. I think if you are not aware of it and different people are designed for different things. Some people are the visionary types, great with disruptive innovation, but as much as we celebrate the Sarah Blakely's of the world from Spanx or the Mark Zuckerberg to the Elon Musk's, there's a lot of really amazing business owners that, you know, I, I love to look at small businesses that have been, you know, in business for 50 to hundred years when there's a chain down, down the block that's, you know, trying to come for their lunch and they just can't, beat the small business, it comes down to experience. It comes down to the customers, right? The, the customer experience and why people want to go there. So that's the big thing I see is like lack of understanding of the audience, lack of understanding is how they're changing as they're going through different scales of their evolution or growth. And then also, like you said, leadership. I think it, it takes a different kind of leader to lead a 5, 10, 20, 50 person team than it does to lead a 20,000 person team. I think that, you know, we're moving to a world where I think people think that they can do things without managers, without, without a lot of people. And I think those companies are going to realize that as great as their AI solutions are, they still do need some level of hierarchy. You know, mm -hmm. flat works, holacracy works for a very specific type of business, for a very specific stage. But, you know, I wouldn't dream of going to work for some of my clients because I would fuck up their businesses, right? I would not be able to be the steward that takes a hundred-year-old um multi, multi-billion dollar market cap valuation company and steer it because mm -hmm. I'm an innovator. I'd want to be coming up with the new ideas. I'd want to be coming up with the, you know, the mirrors and the elevators and the different things. And that might not be what that company needs to continue to steward and survive. So that's just my hot take on it. Again, I think where I like to know myself, I feel like the best thing we can do as, as leaders is know who we are and know what problems and stages we're great at solving. You know, I'm great at what I call the shift moments, right? So um, I have a lot of clients that are Series A, Series B founded companies, and they're looking to get to the next inflection point, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, brand messaging, positioning experience can make a huge difference for that shift. Um, but like when someone's like tinkering in their basement and trying to figure out what the product is that they have, I'm not the best person to hire because you don't have a product yet why am I going to go create a brand for you? Right. Mm -hmm. But when you've got a product that people love and you've got some, you know, the signs of product market fit, and I do have some early stage clients that I work with that are in the seed stage and I've helped them scale from seed to, you know, a or B round quickly because their investors get the story when I'm able to help them tell it, you know, basically just flipping it around and helping them out a little bit, but it's different. Right. And again, I, I, I just like to know myself, you know, I think when I was younger, I had a lot more hubris, and now I'm really clear with clients, like, look, I do not do this. I'm not the expert at it. And like people say, right, when you, when you go out and ask for advice, you get money. When you ask for money, you get advice. 
So what I'd say is people love people that are not afraid to admit that they don't know it. And what I always like to say is if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong fucking room. Mm -hmm. And these might sound like trite concepts, but these are things that having done this for 20 years and still getting out of bed in the morning with the same fervor and excitement, I think that's what keeps me going Mm -hmm. is that understanding that these principles are not going to change. I will change. I will evolve. I'm getting older now. Um, But the principles remain the same. So I hope that's like really answers the question, Brendan, that you had there.